Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today we'll talk about the temptation in the desert. We'll start by taking a quick look at temptation. We can understand temptation in two ways. In the first place, as we all know, as we all know all too well, a temptation is an internal enticement. It's an internal enticement to sin, which arises from the inclination of our appetites, like our sensual appetites, which are disordered because of a problem we all have that's called concupiscence. We're accepting, of course, Our Lady. Now, concupiscence is a $3 word, but it just means the unreasonable, disordered desire uh, for sensual goods that we all suffer from, excepting, of course, her. When we're tempted, we have this little, or sometimes big, or sometimes it can even get to be a huge battle, raging in our souls. But as we all know from our catechism, even if this battle rages for hours or even days, as long as we haven't provoked the temptation, and as long as we don't give in to and consent to the temptation, we haven't committed any sin. So that's the first sense, is temptation is an internal enticement. Secondly, temptation can also mean being put to the test, a test coming from some external object which is being presented to our senses. Now this second kind of temptation, that of an external object being presented to our senses, can definitely produce the first kind of temptation, that internal enticement. After all, that's the purpose of most modern advertising and certainly a huge swath of what passes for fashions. But it's true also that in the second kind of temptation, with an external object being presented to our senses, there doesn't necessarily have to be any sort of internal motion associated with it. So how would that work? Well, suppose someone was trying to con us to do something we didn't want to do, like throw a rock through a big plate glass window. And they're trying to con us into that by promising us that they're going to reward us with a liver and sauerkraut-flavored milkshake if we do it. It's pretty safe to say that unless you're actually starving to death, the offer of a liver and sauerkraut-flavored milkshake would only remain an external temptation, and our passions, our desires, those wouldn't be provoked in the slightest degree by an offer like that. In other words, in this milkshake situation, we'd be put to the test, but we wouldn't have any internal temptation. We wouldn't experience any internal movements of our appetites towards this gross kind of a milkshake, towards the object with which we're being tempted, this object we're being tested with. So it's quite possible to have an exterior temptation, to have something presented to us without having any corresponding interior temptation whatsoever. So for the sake of clarity, let's call the first type that we've talked about, that internal battle type, this internal enticement, being tempted. That's what we think of anyway. That's the common usage. Let's call the second type being tested. It's in front of us but it doesn't provoke that interior struggle. So the internal enticement, we call that being tempted, and something external, we can call that being tested. Today's gospel refers to three temptations of Christ our Lord, but with our usage, it would be much clearer to refer to these not as three temptations, but as three tests. In fact, the word used in the scripture that's translated tempted is tentatorator, And its principal meaning is to try, 
to prove, to put to the test. That's its principal meaning when you translate it. In other words, today's gospel is referring to the second kind of temptation, the liver and sauerkraut-flavored milkshake kind of temptation, an exterior test which doesn't necessarily provoke any corresponding interior movement in the person's soul towards the object being dangled in front of him. So though our Lord could be tested by the devil, Christ our Lord could not be entirely tempted by the devil, or by anything else for that matter. Why not? Because of who he is. He's God. It would be blasphemy to say that God could be tempted to sin. So that's why Christ was only tested. He couldn't possibly believe, and he certainly wasn't tempted by the devil or anything else. There were no internal movements out towards anything the devil could dangle in front of him. Okay, so if these external temptations were only tests, what was the point of Christ our Lord going out in the desert to go through these tests from the devil anyway? We're going to get into all that right now, and for the most part, this part of the sermon is a paraphrase with some direct quotes from the work of Ted Shree and and Tim Gray. Okay. Now, immediately before the scene in today's gospel, today's gospel is taken from the fourth chapter of St. Matthew's gospel, but if we just go a few lines before in the third chapter, we see our Lord being baptized in the River Jordan by St. John the Baptist. And as he comes out of the water, the gospel tells us, quote, And lo, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. We're going to spend some time going through the details here at the baptism because it's important to understand for today's gospel, and it'll bring that episode into clearer focus. First off, the baptism is happening out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. Why would that be significant? Up until the time of our Lord, the Exodus was the single most important event in the history of the Jewish people. So when St. John the Baptist called the people out into the wilderness to be baptized in the River Jordan, this was a very significant sign for the Jews. When they followed St. John the Baptist out in the wilderness and they were baptized in the Jordan and passed over, re-entering the Promised Land, they were ritually reenacting the Exodus. And they're filled with great hope that God would once again free his people, this time not from the pagan Egyptians, but from their current pagan rulers, the Romans. And part of this hope was also rooted in the fact that St. John the Baptist was appearing to them in a certain light. Let's take a closer look at that. St. Matthew points out that St. John the Baptist wore hairy garments bound with a leather strap. Well, so what? The Jews of that day were certainly familiar with the Old Testament. And they knew exactly why this clothing was important. The prophet Elijah, also known as Elias, used to wear this type of clothing. And as we know, the angel Gabriel had explicitly told St. John's father. Now, the Jews didn't know that at large, but we do. The angel Gabriel had explicitly told St. John the Baptist's father, Zachary, that St. John would, quote, be grateful for the Lord and should go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elias to prepare unto the Lord a perfect people. Okay. The Jews are also waiting for Elijah's return. They knew that when Elijah would return, he would be preparing the way for the Messiah, this messianic king. So when St. John the Baptist appears in hairy garments with a leather girdle, 
looking like Elijah. And then he's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Jews see this, and they're left wondering. And then he's doing this action, this ritual reenactment of the exodus and coming into the promised land there during this baptism unto repentance at the Jordan. Okay, and notice what happened at the baptism of our Lord. As he comes out of the water, you have a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. You have the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased that people are hearing. And you have St. John the Baptist, this prophet, pointing him out. And they knew that Elijah was going to come before the Messiah and point as, as his predecessor. When the prophet Samuel anointed David as king, the Holy Spirit came mightily upon him. So the visible coming of the Holy Spirit upon our Lord during his baptism in the Jordan can be seen as his anointing as king. In Hebrew, the word for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. It's often used in the Old Testament to describe the kings of the house of David who were anointed with oil when they took office. The term Messiah also referred to the future anointed king who would lead the new exodus and restore the Davidic kingdom. So after having been publicly borne witness to by the voice of God the Father, by a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and by the preaching of St. John the Baptist, when our Lord came up out of the Jordan, he's ready to begin his messianic mission of building the kingdom of God. So what were the Jews expecting the Messiah to do? Well, based on their understanding of such messianic scriptures as Psalm 2, and if we had time, I'd read the whole thing, but you should. It's not that long. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 specifically speaks about the Messiah. So based on their understanding of messianic scriptures like that, the Jews thought that the Messiah would lead them in the restoration of Israel and the Tell tribes and liberate them from the pagan nations. Now, there were different understandings of this. Some thought the, the Messiah would drive off the Romans, restore the political fortunes of Israel, and like King Solomon, would once again rule from the holy city of Jerusalem. In other words, they were looking for an earthly Messiah to free them from the pagan nations. But instead of confronting the Romans, instead of confronting the contemporary version of Pharaoh's army, no sooner has our Lord been baptized and thereby identified publicly as the Messiah or the Anointed One than he heads off into the desert. That's his very first action after the baptism. Why does he go out into the desert? By starting his public ministry in a duel with the devil, our Lord shows what type of messianic king he will be. Our Lord came not to fight the Romans, but to attack the very root of the problem, which is sin. The sins of Israel and indeed of all of mankind. St. Augustine points out, we have as many masters as we have vices. We have as many masters as we have vices. A vice is a sinful habit. We have as many masters as we have vices. So when we're talking about sin, we're talking about bondage. In other words, if sin were conquered, if sin were trampled underfoot, Israel and all of mankind would truly be free. 
The bondage of the Jewish people was, and unfortunately it still is, much worse than iron chains, much worse than dungeons, much worse than Roman military occupation. It's slavery to sin. The liberation our Lord came to give the Jewish people, and indeed all of mankind, is a liberation from sin. So indeed he does come to lead a new exodus, but not into an earthly land. He came to lead his followers into the promised land of heaven. So now let's turn to the battle with the devil in the desert. In order to appreciate what our Lord is doing, we need to take a closer look at certain aspects of the Exodus. We all know the story. The people of Israel have become slaves down in Egypt. God raises up Moses, sends him to Pharaoh with the the message, let my son go. Israel's my firstborn son, let my son go. After striking Egypt with the plagues, Moses leads him out, and he parts the waters of the Red Sea, and the people of Israel flee. And then they begin wandering through the wilderness towards the Promised Land on a trip that took 40 years, a trip in which Israel was tested and tried. To appreciate what our Lord does now, we need to consider three of the major trials that Israel underwent during those 40 years. The first trial, you can read about this in Exodus chapter 16. At this point, after watching the Lord strike the land of Egypt with the ten plagues, and after safely passing through the Red Sea with the waters piled up on either side of them, just imagine what that would have looked like as you're fleeing, with the waters piled up on either side of it, and you're on a dry path on the bottom of the ocean, and there's this pillar of fire and pillar of smoke right behind you to keep Pharaoh's army from catching up to you because they're in hot pursuit. You have this army in hot pursuit, but the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke is right behind you as you're fleeing through there, and the waters are stacked up on each side. So then after, after going through that, after seeing the immortal enemy Pharaoh and all his armies just completely wiped out when the waters closed over them, now the people are safe in the desert. They've got peace and quiet. And now they've seen all these things. They've seen all these miracles. They're being led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of smoke during the day. Now they're finally completely free to worship the one true God in spirit and truth and peace and freedom. So now they're just full of joy and completely trust in the Lord and rely on his providence, right? Wrong. I'll read from the word of God. In all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat over, by the, flesh, sat over the flesh plots and ate bread to the full. Why have you brought us into this desert that you may destroy all the multitude with famine? Close quote the word of the Lord. They have no trust in God at all. And as we know, God sent the manna, this bread from heaven, to feed him. Second trial. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 17. Here we go again. The people of God have moved to a new camp. Now, it's really important to remind ourselves that they didn't just wander around looking for a place to camp and say, oh, this looks like a nice place. They were led. They were led by the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, and then 
specifically also by the commandment of God himself, as the scriptures make clear. I'll read. Exodus 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the sons of Israel moved on according to the commandment of the Lord and camped, but there was no water for the people to drink. Close quote. Okay, so God has led them to this new campsite, and in spite of all they've seen, and even though they're now being fed by this miraculous heavenly bread called manna, they commence to throw another fit. Exodus 17, verses 2 and following. Therefore the people found fault with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you find fault with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people thirsted there for water and murmured against Moses and said, Why did he bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Close quote. So God responds by having Moses give them water from a rock, and quote, He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. Massa means temptation or testing, and Meribah means contention. So he called the place, the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the fault finding of the sons of Israel and because they put the Lord to the test by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Close quote, Exodus 17, 7. Okay, now keep in mind, they're throwing this fit and asking, is the Lord among us or not? And here's this pillar right there, of, uh, of smoke, right there. At night it's fire, and the day it's smoke, it's standing right there, and they're throwing this big fit. They're getting fed by this miracle bread, and they're wondering if the Lord's among us. Now, obviously God had let them there. Obviously he hasn't left them, and obviously he's been feeding them with manna for heaven. It's not like he's going to let them all thirst to death. By this time they should have learned to humbly trust God to take care of their needs, but instead they arrogantly put God to the test by demanding that God prove he's among them by giving them water right then and there. It's like, God, we demand this, here's our little hoop, you jump through it. That's the kind of situation that that we see at this point. Third trial. We can read about this in Exodus chapter 32, which contains the story of the golden calf. We all know the story. After Moses went up on the mountain, except there are 40 days, the people said to Aaron, Arise, make us gods that may go before us. And Aaron builds a pagan idol, a golden calf. It's a statue of Apis. This is the Egyptian bull god of strength and fertility. And then they promptly commit sin of idolatry by worshiping it. So you took the people out of Egypt, but you didn't take Egypt out of the people. That's the lesson there. Okay, so what have we seen? We've taken a quick look at three of the great trials of the Exodus. The first trial was that of Israel doubting that God provide food for them in the desert. The second trial is that of Israel putting the Lord to the test at Massa by asking, is the Lord among us or not? With a pillar of smoke standing right there in the camp. And then these little pipsqueaks have the arrogance to demand that God prove that he's among them by giving him water on demand. Third trial is that of idolatry when Israel worships the golden calf. Now let's take all this and apply it to today's gospel. Throughout Jewish history, the king has been regarded as an embodiment of the whole nation. So what happened to the king we said to have happened to the people as a whole. When the king is faithful to the covenant, then the entire nation receives the blessing of God. But when they have sin on the throne, the entire nation suffers. The king represented the people. So as the anointed one, Christ our Lord went imbued as his Jewish, by his Jewish followers as the representative. And as the representative, our Lord spends 40 days in the desert, symbolically reliving the 40 years of the Exodus. During his time in the wilderness, he experiences 
the same three trials that Israel did during Exodus, but with one huge difference. Where Israel failed, our Lord triumphs, and in the process, as a great foreshadowing of his ultimate triumph on the cross, he conquers sin and he defeats the devil. Now, just pause for a sec on this. Why? What's in it for the devil? Why is the devil tempting him? We should stop and ask ourselves this question. Because he's trying to figure out who our Lord is. He's not sure. St. Thomas explains. I quote from the Summa. As St. Augustine says, Christ was known to the demons only insofar as he willed. Not as the author of eternal life, but as the cause of certain temporal effects, from which the demons formed a certain conjecture that Christ was the Son of God. But since they also observed in him certain signs of human frailty, they did not know for certain whether he was the Son of God. Wherefore, the devil wished to tempt him. Moreover, this appears from the very manner of the temptation when the devil says, If thou be the Son of God. Which words St. Ambrose explains as follows. What means this way of addressing him? Save that though he knew that the Son of God was to come, he did not think that he had come in the weakness of the flesh. Close quote St. Thomas Aquinas. So the devil isn't sure. The devil knows he's dealing with somebody very unusual here, but he doesn't know. So that's why he's, are you the Son of God? That's what he's trying to find out. Okay. First temptation, St. Matthew. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. And the tempter coming said to him, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Who answered and said, It is written, Not in bread alone doth a man live, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Close quote. So in our Lord's first temptation, he faces hunger in the desert. But unlike Israel, our Lord doesn't waver. And in response to the devil's temptation, he quotes scripture. Now when you read the Bible, every time our Lord quotes the Old Testament, one really good habit to get into is to go back and read the part of scripture that our Lord just quoted from. So we're going to do just that. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now in this chapter, Moses is warning the people not to forget God. I'll read Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, and we're going to get the context of what our Lord is quoting. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Close quote. So our Lord quotes a scripture which refers directly to the first trial of Israel in the desert. But what Israel had failed at our Lord does perfectly. Second temptation, St. Matthew. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, 
For it is written that he hath given his angels charge over thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest perhaps thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Close quote. Now in this case, the devil is trying to get our Lord to put God to the test, to prove he means what he says. And notice the devil is actually quoting scripture. He knows scripture. In this case, our Lord responds by quoting part of Deuteronomy 6.16. Moses has just told the people they should love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their souls, and with all their might. And then in verse 16, Moses states, quote, You shall not tempt the Lord thy God as you tested him at Massa. Close quote. Our Lord quotes a scripture which refers directly to the second great failing of Israel in the desert at Massa. And again, what Israel failed at, our Lord does perfectly. Third temptation, St. Matthew. Again, the devil took him up into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said to him, All these will I give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou adore, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Close quote. The Haydock commentary notes at this point, Christ does not quote, cite the precise words of Scripture, but rather the substance of several verses. Deuteronomy 5, 7 and 9, 6, 13 and 10, 20. I'll read those verses. Thou shalt not have strange gods in my sight. Thou shalt not adore them, and thou shalt not serve them. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and shalt serve him only. Close quotes. So the third great failing of Israel in the desert was idolatry. And in this third temptation, our Lord just brushes that away. Again, we see what Israel had failed at, our Lord does perfectly. Our Lord's victory over the devil sets the tone for the rest of his public ministry. For those three years, he'll travel through the Holy Land, freeing men from sin and from the effects of sin by healing the sick, casting out devils, and forgiving sins. As we read in 1 John 3.8, For this purpose the Son of God appeared, that he might destroy the works of the devil. During this Holy Land, let us carefully examine our hearts to make sure we're not imitating the people of Israel, to make sure we don't forget all the marvelous things the Lord has done for us and continues to do for us, especially remaining really present with us in the most blessed sacrament of the altar, far more marvelous than a pillar of fire. Let's carefully examine our hearts to make sure we placed all our trust in him, to make sure that we're careful not to put him to the test, to make sure that we aren't guilty of worshiping any false gods, gods like pleasure, power, possessions, sex, ourselves. During this Holy Lent, let us rather strive to imitate Christ our Lord with fasting, prayers, and resisting temptations. 
And let us strive to show our thankfulness to the Father for sending his Son that he might destroy the works of the devil.